Welcome to Anxiety and the Artist, the podcast that explores artist relationship with anxiety, offering insight and inspiration. I'm your host, Allison Schaff, a writer, director, artistic liaison, and mom. I'm so grateful you're here. My guest today is Terry Hyde. Terry is a former member of the Royal Ballet, London's Festival Ballet, and a veteran performer of West End musicals, film, and television. He transitioned to a career as a psychotherapist in 2012 and is the creator of Counseling for Dancers and the app Help for Dancers. Terry, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Alison. Um, so tell us a little bit about your background as an artist and what led you to become a therapist. Um, well, going way back, uh, I was a very lively child <laughs> and uh, would jump up and down on the furniture. And rather than having to replace the furniture, the cost of that, my mother took me to ballet classes age six. And I just loved it. It, <laughs> it, it was it. This was it, I thought. This was it. And uh, at the age of 10, my teacher obviously thought the same and put me in for a scholarship with the Royal Academy of Dance. And I won a scholarship for the next five years. So that took me up to joining the Royal Ballet Upper School, the senior school, um, which I stayed there for uh, nearly three years. So in my graduation year, in January of my graduation year, the artistic director of the Royal Ballet phoned up the school and asked them to release me so that I could join the company. Okay. How wonderful. No audition, eh? Nice. <laughs> um, I stayed with the company uh, about two and a half, three years, I think it was. And I wanted to do more character work. So I joined London's Festival Ballet as a soloist. Um, that company is now called English National Ballet. And I was doing soloists and principal roles, as, a, as I said, mostly character work. Sancho Panza, headmistress in graduation ball, all, all of those, Dr. Capelius. So all, all of those, those types of roles. But I wanted to do some, some more than just dance and act. And I wanted mm -hmm. to use my voice. So in a, in a summer break, I auditioned for a UK tour of West Side Story. What a show. It's much better than the film. The show is, is exceeds the film. Um, and so I did, I did that tour. That was 13 weeks. Um, and so when I finished, uh, the company manager from Festival Bali phoned me up and said, oh, I understand you finished. Would you like to come back as a guest artist for our Christmas season in Nutcracker at Festival, London's Festival Hall? Um, and I... I didn't have any other work, so I said, yes, okay. And as you may know, there's a lot of uh, shows over Christmas, mm -hmm. 12 shows a week. Oh. So that's two shows oh. a day, back to back. And at the end of that run, they said, uh, would you like to rejoin the company? I said, no. <laughs> so I gave up <laughs> ballet for musical theatre and I was doing West End musicals, as you mentioned in the bio, and then film and TV and commercials, uh, that sort of thing, uh, cabaret as well. Um, and then, then I retired at the ripe old age of 29. Oh, uh, for, well, it was it was for, <laughs> yes, it was for personal reasons. I was just getting into getting some good parts in the West End, uh, mm -hmm. but I I had to give up, um, okay. and I, I I got the day job. You've heard a sort of the showbiz expression, "Don't give up the day job." 
Mm-hmm. Well, I got my day job. It was okay. uh, sales management in um, British Gas and then in a, a frozen food company. Um, and then I thought, oh, I can't stand this. So I set, <laughs> I set up a business It sounds management. very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> it, well, I learned a lot. And that's the thing, you know, when I'm doing therapy with people or doing my workshops for schools and dance companies, it, there are no catastrophes in life. They're all learning events. You know, what did you get out of it? Right. Anyway, um, I I set up a business management organization to look after people in show business and built it up and ran that for 15 years. And it was during that time when um, clients would finish, um, you know, we're talking business or what they're going to do, etc., that they would offload their personal issues on me. Mm -hmm. I've obviously got one of those faces. (laughs) <laughs> that people will talk to or talk right. at, talk at, in fact. Right. Anyway, so I, I sold, sold the business and I thought I'd take early retirement. And after a couple of years, I got so bored once again and um, then trained as a psychotherapist because I wanted to know more about what to do with, you know, when people offload their issues on me. And I, it fascinated me. Mm-hmm. And so that, that was um, 2010 that I started seeing clients, but I saw the general population. In 2016, um, a dancer, an ex-dancer, came to see me after being uh, discharged from a psychiatric unit. And um, she thought that I would understand a bit more. And it was, it was then during those sessions that that was right. Hmm. A dancer needs a dancer, a therapist who's a dancer, to understand the ins and outs of training from such an early age, the rigours of training, the rigours of performing. And so in January 2017, I uh, set up the uh, website Counselling for Dancers. And I won't say it's easy because there is this stigma. So even now, um, dance companies and even dance schools um, still have that feeling of everything must be smiley and glittery and mm-hmm. the end product counts. I don't care how you get there, but the end product mm-hmm. counts rather than looking after their dancers and making sure that they're all right. Uh, they, they, most of them do physically, so they'll have the dance-trained uh, physical therapists, but mental health-wise they don't. They may tick a box and have... Um, a counsellor in the school but it's a counsellor that doesn't understand and when I get dancers come to me who um, who, who, for therapy one of the questions I always ask at the beginning is have you had previous therapy Uh, what helped what didn't help so that I understand where they are and so the ones that have had therapy before to the question did it help they say yes but and then go through the thing about they didn't understand, they don't understand why I do this, they don't understand why I think that way. And so I think what I'm trying to do now is to get more transitioning dancers to um, study as psychotherapists and train as psychotherapists or counsellors. Now in the US, it's, excuse me, the US is different training to the UK and different names as well. because uh, in the US there's um, social workers, but social workers in the UK are totally different. They hmm. don't do mental health or anything like that. Okay. Um, so 
That was the difficulty, and also the difficulty in the states is that they're only allowed to practice within their own state. Yeah. So they can't travel. They can't. They can't even do Zoom sessions. Yeah. Uh, uh, across across the country, whereas uh, the Australian therapists and myself in the UK can do so. So uh, half of my clients come from the US, both, so both in therapy and in the workshops, uh, dance companies and dance schools, uh, colleges um, get me to do, and it's all over Zoom. That's wonderful. And way to provide for a niche, like... <laughs> mm. Yeah. You know, to, to recognize an opportunity. Mm. Um, so in a previous conversation that you and I had, you had mentioned to me that you recognized neurodivergent traits in yourself. Yes, that's right. And as you were exp having your career in the arts, um, tell us a little bit more about that and how that impacted your experience. Well, first of all, the, the recognizing, did you not recognize that I rambled on? That's okay. I, I answered your question. <laughs> and then we and, and that is a neurodiverse an ADHD trait. Mm -hmm. So the, the the thing is, especially with ballet training, it can be with other dance. Uh, it, it depends on the person. But when I said I really loved it and I knew what I was doing, it's it's the regular exercise. Uh, the sorry, the regular technique exercises that are needed. Doing the same music, doing the same, and it's all very black and white. You're either right, mm -hmm. you're in the right position, you've got your arms right, or you're wrong. So it's very black and white thinking, and that is part of the autistic spectrum. Uh, the ADHD has the, the energy, the drive, the focus uh, in certain aspects. And so it's recognizing those traits um, in, in myself that I've seen in others, whether mm. they have been diagnosed or not. And um, I, I, can, I can help them with understanding because it's it's all to do with the wiring in the brain and with neuroplasticity you can change you're not mm -hmm. it's not you can't teach an old dog's new tricks you can by um changing in a very small way so very small changes over a period of a month so you have one small change and you do that over a month new neural pathways new neural transmitters are, are, are making connections during that time of change because you're doing something different you're thinking something differently the old ones are still there so if perhaps you be you feel a bit low you can't be bothered you can't do anything you'll then lapse back into the old neural pathways the old habits so they hmm. still remain there it's as if um it's an analogy here coming up <laughs> <laughs> you're your your car is your life, but mm -hmm. you're sitting in the passenger seat. The personality traits, whatever they are, are in the driving seat, and they drive you, and they crash into the curb, up onto the sidewalk. They they knock bollards over. Do you have bollards in your country? You know, things that are sticking up in the road <laughs> road to, to to guide you away from things. And you want to turn left? No, the car wants to turn right. So the, this is the analogy of how our personality traits work. So rather than the, the, the personality of traits driving, you start understanding what those traits are and how detrimental they are to you. You can then grab the steering wheel and you're driving your own life then rather than personality traits driving your life. 
So, so that's something that the, the artists themselves can do. What is something that those of us who are sort of on the other side of the table, the, the, um, the creative teams, um, how can we be more inclusive in our practices for neurodivergent artists? It's a greater understanding of what those traits are. So, for instance, um, for someone who has the hyperactivity part of ADHD, um, they will not be able to concentrate a lot for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them will be able to concentrate. They enjoy the concentration from a certain aspect, but they will zone out. So, you know, you think about a, a child looking out of a window in a classroom. Mm-hmm. That they're not being rude. They have zoned out. Um, you, you can you can bring them back. You could be kind to them and say, would you like me to repeat the exercise for you? So okay. th- there is one way without pointing out that that uh, student. So otherwise, everyone's going to be focused on on the student. So right. you you could say instead of saying, "Would you like me to?" I say, "Okay, let me just um, repeat the exercise for everyone." Right. So that's one thing. So you can see it. You can see also fear in the eyes sometimes of neurodivergent. So they know that something's been going on, but they've missed out. Hmm. So you see like stare eyes, fear in their eyes. Um, Sometimes there is overwhelm both with ADHD and autism. So I've got two clients or did have two clients. uh, They've finished all all of their sessions now who um, are allowed in a professional company who are allowed to deal with overwhelm just by sort of nodding to whoever is in charge and leaving the, the studio for 10 minutes. That's all they need is to get over. They do the deep breathing exercises. They focus, start focusing again, and then they can return. Um, one of them has to wear ear defenders because of the mm. noise is too much so they can hear the music, but it's not overpowering. So there's a lot of um, things that the management can do. So I think for teachers, it's to do um, an awareness course. There's a load of autism and ADHD awareness courses online. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to um, go anywhere. So do one of those so that you, you you can see what is going on for the individual and to become aware of it. And most of the people with neurodivergent um, traits are highly intelligent. Mm-hmm. They can beat any, anyone else at the uh, IQ test. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not that they're stupid. It's not that they're li- not listening on purpose. It's, they get bored easily a lot yeah. of the time because of their high intelligence. And I'm talking academic work now. So a child will finish an exercise and wondering why all the others are still working at it and perhaps they become um, annoying and do jokes and things like that. So there's so many children that have been suspended from school or whatever whatever you call it uh, in in the States um, and have missed out on education because they're a nuisance. Well, that's what the teachers and the schools think that they're a nuisance. But no, they're intelligent and they need 
more work. So right. I, I don't think that necessarily applies to dance, but I'm just using that as an example. Right. Well, and there's at least with education, there seems to be a one size fits all approach. Unfortunately, to, yes. <laughs> where, you know, it, it that that's it. This is the way we're going to teach it. And if you don't learn that way, well, then too bad. Mm-hmm. And so as a director, I'm always looking for new and different ways to approach the rehearsal process. You know, we, because I refuse to to stand on the, but this is the way we've always done it. Like, because I know that there's other ways to approach things, you mm. know. Um, so do you have any suggestions for in the rehearsal room, um, sort of going against tradition and trying new things? Do, do you have any suggestions that are particularly helpful for neurodivergent artists? I think this is helpful for all artists the fact that there are different learning methods. Mm-hmm. So there's the, um, <laughs> you caught me on the hop here. <laughs> <laughs> there's the kinesthetic, in other words, doing doing something. There's mm-hmm. the visual and there's the auditory one. So if you are facing away from the rehearsal and doing it with their, your back, showing the steps at the back, an auditory person can't learn by just visualising. When you look at someone, if you're, if you're watching a class and someone else teaching a class, you watch the students, how they learn. Um, because the ones, if the, if the teacher or the director is facing away and, and, you're, and you're watching the class, you're watching the rehearsal that's going on, you will see those people that learn in an auditory fashion mm-hmm. looking at other dancers to see what they're doing, to see whether they can pick it up because they can't pick it up from backwards. Mm-hmm. They may be able to pick it up from the front, but then they're also listening mm-hmm. as well. <laughs> So there's this there's you you have to understand those three forms of learning mm-hmm. to be able to help all of the dancers. Right. We can't we can't do it in sound, but I what I do is when I'm doing my workshops, I I put my right arm out, palm down. I I then say, okay, do this. And they all do it. I then said I make a fist and I say, make a fist. And they say, okay, now bring your fist in and put your fist on your chin. But I don't do that. I put my fist on my cheek. And it's Mm. amazing how many people will follow me rather than hear me. Mm -hmm. And so it's a point that I do when I'm doing workshops for teachers, for groups of teachers. And um, they go, oh, yes. Oh, and then I explain what I explained to you about not facing the class or facing the class or the rehearsal or whatever. Right. And so it's and it and it's even more important for the neurodiverse dancers. Interesting. That's so interesting. What advice would you have for an artist that is struggling right now? Okay. So there's there's a couple of things. The thing is to decide what can you control and what can't you control? And what you can't control, you need to release. 
Mm-hmm. And then what you can control, you decide what you can change. And then change it. You can change your perception on any situation. So there are two people standing at a bus stop on a rainy morning going off to work, pouring with rain, and a bus comes along and doesn't stop because it's full. Ten minutes later, another bus comes along, doesn't stop because it's full. One person says, this always happens to me. I may as well go home, curl up in bed, because I'm not going to get to work, I'm not going to get any work done. So off they go. The other person gets out their phone, phones the office and says, sorry, I'm going to be late because the buses uh, aren't stopping. Um, Does anyone want any donuts when I come in? A totally different perception of the same situation. Right. So people who are feeling low because something has happened to them, they need to view their perception of what it is that's happened to them. Can they control it? So if they're feeling low because they didn't get a job uh, at an audition, rather than saying, I'm no good, I may as well give up, Um, it's always been like this. Well, actually, if they look back at their career, it hasn't always been like this because they've been getting jobs. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's the state of their own mind. Do you have a fixed mindset or do you have a flexible mindset? Now, I call it a flexible mindset because dancers should have flexible body and flexible mind. Psychologists mm-hmm. say it's a growth mindset. So it's a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. Mm-hmm. But for dancers, flexible mindset. So if you have a flexible mindset, you think, not why didn't I get the job? I mean, you can think that. You can think logically, actually, all the girls or all the guys were six foot tall and I'm only five foot five, perhaps the reason why, because they were looking for tall people or whatever, whatever different reason. It's not that you're not any good. Mm -hmm. It's just the way you think about it. What did I learn from that? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So you, you come away in any what you could consider a a catastrophic situation or a negative situation is a learning event. Right. Is there anything else you'd like to share in relation to anxiety and the artist before we go? Uh, Yes. Yes, I do. Sorry. This is what it's called, anxiety and the artist. Um, I'm really sorry to say this, and and it's used um, in a derogatory way by people. The expression is, it's all in your head. Well, I'm sorry to say, but it's not derogatory. It's true. Anxiety Mm. is all in the head. It's created by an assumption that something is going wrong. Something will happen. So anxiety is to do with the present and the future, and depression is to do with the past. So anxiety is carrying forward something or something similar that has happened it's happening again so it's a trigger within you and you get a feeling inside you and that's what you think is anxiety but the feeling is the trigger so for an adult it will be something probably 
that's happened in your childhood. So your inner child is kicking off and you get this feeling inside you. If you're an adult and you've had an adult trauma, then that may be coming back. It's a mild PTSD or a strong PTSD. You don't just have to be in the armed forces to have PTSD. Mm-hmm. And, and so the anxiety is a fear of something is going to happen. And when you actually sit down or stand still and just breathe deeply and slowly and wait, nothing will happen. See, unless there is a real trauma, like someone grabs your bag in the street or your phone, that is a real trauma. That's when your fight and flight kicks mm. in. And the the fight and fight kicks in when you think something is going to happen. So that's how powerful our minds are. We can create in ourselves a trauma. So if we can do that with our minds, we can also reverse it. Right. So when you think of a situation, so like before going on stage, why are you anxious? Are you really anxious? Did you know that the physical feelings of anxiety are identical to the physical feelings of excitement? Right. The, th the thing is, we create our own reality. Whatever we focus on, we get. So that lady at the bus stop in the rain focused on what's going to happen. So she probably looked out of her window and said, it's raining. Oh, no, the buses are going to just go past her. I never get. So she's created that already in her head. And it happened. It happened yeah. for her. And you, you go back, listeners, go back and think about situations where you have created something. I mean, you, you're creating all the time. We're creating all the time. So go back and see what you were thinking at the time prior to a situation. So before you go on stage, you're going to be worrying, or you have been. After this podcast, you're not going to be worrying. You're going to be <laughs> worrying about mistakes you made in rehearsals about what people have said to you negatively and you're going to create the same thing on stage by the what what you, what you thought of so when you think about um people going wrong in choreography or going wrong missing their lines something like that they have thought before i i i mustn't forget to do this line properly so that sentence in itself is negative. Right. Now, the brain doesn't recognize negative words. So I mustn't. Mustn't is a negative word that goes out according to the brain. So all you're saying is, I must forget my lines. Right. Or I will forget my lines. So we use a dance bag. Don't forget your dance bag. So don't is the negative word in that sentence. So what you're going to do, you're going to forget your dance bag. So right. remember your dance bag. And if you yep. are going to say something about the line that you missed, I need to remember that line. So you're creating a positive energy for that line rather than creating a negative thought, which the brain says, oh, this is the line we've got to forget. And suddenly yep. you go blank. 
<laughs> I think that's so fascinating too. Mm. Uh, you're, you're certainly not the first guest to to mention this. And it's so, I mean, I've, since I've been doing this podcast, I've really been trying to put that into practice in my own life. And it's so true. And it's just the smallest, simplest thing. But just having that reframe of putting something in the positive as opposed mm. to the negative really can make a huge difference. So when you get that <clears throat> tingly tummy, the heart pounding, the dry mouth, the sweaty palms, or whatever else uh, of the symptoms, physical symptoms that you have, mm -hmm. you say to yourself over and over and over again, I'm so excited about going on stage. I'm so excited about performing. And you continue to say that you will then reprogram because when you were a child, it, this could happen. When you were a child and you were doing your first performance, age three, four, five, six, whatever, mm -hmm. and you said, oh, I got this, I got this butterflies in my tummy and, and my, my hands are all, all perspiring and, 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 and I, can't, I can't keep still and I, I'm, I want to go to the toilet or the bathroom, as you say in America. I want to go to the toilet. And um, and the, the adult next to you says, oh, you must be anxious. Bing. She's programmed. Right. That child has been programmed already to, to say that those physical feelings are anxiety. Right. Or, or they may have said they're nervous, but it's, it's the same difference. Right. So it's a lot of reprogramming to do. So when I say you need to do it over and over again, Yes, you need to say, I'm excited about this. I'm excited for the exams. I'm excited for the competitions. I'm excited for the assessments. And you just carry on. Keep saying, before you do it, when you get that feeling, you're reprogramming your brain to say that those physical feelings are excitement, not um, anxiety. Because there's an intrinsic link between the mind and the body. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating, right? <laughs> Mm. <laughs> Terry, I am so sorry that I, I have to unfortunately end our conversation, but I have thoroughly enjoyed chatting with you. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's uh, my pleasure. And sharing your insight and your wisdom and your experience. It's it's so important, I think, for, for everybody to hear from someone who has been through it and, and who is now trying to help the next generation. So thank you. Again, my pleasure. Thanks for spending this time with us. We'd love to connect with you. You can find us on Instagram at Anxiety and the Artist. If you want insight and inspiration on dealing with anxiety delivered to your inbox, subscribe to our monthly emails at anxietyandtheartist.com. If you like the show, tell a friend about it. Love an episode? Share it in your Instagram stories. Also, leaving a quick review in the podcast app of your choice really helps us get the word out. Thank you to Bosco Chef, who composed our theme music and provides sound editing and engineering for each episode. And thanks to our marketing consultant, Ben Nissen. Until next time, I'm Allison Chef. Be healthy and stay creative. This podcast represents the opinions of Allison Chef and her guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only. And because each person is so unique, please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions.